0: lovely trill of the lyrebird. The name of this Australian avian suggests an instrument, and indeed, the lyre is the shape of this animal's fan tail, but this bird also loves to make music. The lyrebird has not just a broad tail, but also a broad repertoire. In a BBC Earth documentary, that includes imitating another Australian bird, a kookaburra, The lyrebird can mimic other visitors to its forest home. For example, the auto-advanced shutter of a 35 millimeter camera, a car alarm, the chainsaws of lumberjacks working nearby. We know that animals have extraordinary abilities and that our lives have intruded upon theirs, sometimes with calamitous results. Yet, on the whole, we see animals as so separate from us that we're not always nice to them. Now, why is that? We share four billion years of evolutionary history. Why is our relationship with our animal relatives so fraught? And can we find a way back into the animal kingdom? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, a scientist takes on the notion of animals described in children's books, a bittersweet tribute to the species that rocketed into space, and why humans stubbornly resist identifying as animals, even though we are. Can we do better? This episode, Make Space for Animals.
0: Yesterday, I saw a video of an orangutan driving a golf cart. Did you see that, Molly? Yes,
1: yes, I saw that. It was incredible. He was driving it, I think, with one hand.
0: Yeah, with full confidence, too. I mean, he didn't seem the least bit tentative about it. He was steering it around. He looked like a better driver than a lot of my friends, I'll tell you that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it looked like he was surveying the grounds. So he had that kind of nonchalance, looking around. As though he had been doing this every day.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. And that's what I thought. I thought, you know, people are worried about robots taking over their jobs. (laughs) What about the orangutans? I mean, this guy was good. (laughs) No accident. He got to the tree he wanted to get to. Everybody got out. They were all safe and sound.
1: You know, we wonder about the veracity of the videos that we see on social media. So I did check it out on Snopes, um, one of the go-to websites to find out what is real and what's not. And the reply from them was... True. Really? That this video shows an orangutan driving a golf cart.
0: Well, driving a golf cart's one thing, but playing golf, you know, that requires a certain mindset.
1: <laughs> okay, so it turns out that is an animal story that really happened. And we know that animals can do extraordinary things. But what about how they're portrayed in other stories? Like the one about the crow raising the level of drinking water in a pitcher, with stones, or the lion resting its paw on a man's lap.
0: If these stories sound plausible, even sensible, it's because many of us grew up with these tales of tailed and feathered creatures. Although it was written two and a half thousand years ago, Aesop's fables are still read to children today. The animals in these stories have qualities we recognize as human. Even grasshoppers have emotions in Aesop's world where the animals give us moral instruction. Here's a familiar tale
2: okay so this has to be the best known of aesop's fables the fable of the tortoise and the hare where famously of course the tortoise bets that it can beat a hare in a race and the hare thinks well of course i'll take this bet because i'm much much faster than a tortoise the fox sets the course gets them off to a start and the tortoise just plods away continuously the hare being very arrogant and believing that it's going to win um, thinks, oh, I can go and have a nap and I'll still have plenty of time to win. And of course, the hare falls asleep and wakes up in time to see the tortoise plodding its way over the line. The moral of the story is that slow and steady wins the race.
1: In her book, Aesop's Animals, The Science Behind the Fables, Dr. Winpenny Penny assesses whether these moralizing stories you heard growing up ring true from a modern scientific perspective.
0: And to what extent have they typecast his animal protagonists, even today? Whether it's the sly fox, the selfish dog, or the clever crow. And did he anticipate modern science and actually get some of his animal descriptions right?
2: Let's get an introduction out of the way, Joe. Who was Aesop? Now, the popular view is that he was a slave. He lived in Greece in the region of 600 BCE. Um, and he won his freedom through his incredible wit um, and ability to to tell stories to the people who were, you know, maybe higher up in society. And, you know, famous people like Aristotle and Herodotus referred to Aesop and to his fables in their works. So, you know, suggesting they very much thought he he also was a real person. But... Modern scholars today point out that there are quite a few inconsistencies in these depictions of his life. And it has been suggested that he might well be a, a fictional character that was created um, about the same time as the fables started to be recorded. So Aesop may or may not have been
1: a real character, but certain is his, his fables are real and they've had incredible longevity. So Joan, let's begin with one of the animals close to your heart because you studied them and that is crows. And could you describe how one crow behaves in the tale of the crow and the pitcher?
2: Yes. So this is, again, quite a well-known fable, I think. Um, You've got a crow, it's parched, it can't find any water, desperately thirsty, and it comes across a pitcher which is half full of water. And the crow tries, you know, really tries to stretch its head into the picture um, and to, to reach the water, but it can't. So what it does is it goes and it picks up stones and it starts to drop them into the picture. And each time it drops a stone, it causes the water level to rise a little bit. And bit by bit, the water level rises enough for the crow to actually drink. And the moral of that is that necessity is the mother of invention.
1: This may be the, the one fable in which Aesop strongly anticipated our scientific understanding of crows. You shared the research that was done in 2008 where this almost this very scenario played out in a lab in Cambridge. What happened?
2: Absolutely. This fable is based in fact. So we're in Cambridge. We're with researchers Nathan Emery and Chris Bird, and they're studying rooks. Um, and What Nathan and Chris wanted to do was really to test Aesop's fable. Would the rooks behave as Aesop's crow had done um, and drop stones into the water? And they found that several of their birds did do this, with the exception that they hadn't been deprived of water. So what they had instead was a very juicy little worm, which was tacked to a piece of cork and floated at the the surface of the water. So they dropped stones in in order to, to reach their tasty worm.
1: We know that crows are quite intelligent. There have been many studies that have demonstrated that in in different ways. But really then the question is, what is intelligence? And maybe one way to answer that is to talk about the role of tool use in demonstrating intelligence.
2: Would that apply to crows? And what would that say about their intelligence? Yes. So pretty much the most famous bird tool user is a species of crow. It's the new Caledonian crow. What do they use for their tools? Not just rocks, right? No, so not rocks. So they're using stick tools, which could either be little twigs or sometimes they snip out little bits of leaf edge um, and they will use them to to probe for larvae and grubs um, and other things from dead wood.
1: They hold it in their beak and then they poke poke the, the stick into a hole in a tree, something like that?
2: Yeah, exactly. So there's some evidence that they try to, not try to, they do actually craft the end of the stick tools into little hooks, Um, and the leaf edges that they snip out have little barbs on the edge of them, and they hold them so that the barbs are pointing backwards. So when they poke them into a a piece of rotting bark, if there's a grub inside, um, it often gets snagged on the tools, so that they are better able to um, to pull it in and retrieve it. So. You know, they're kind of like chimpanzees fishing for termites using sticks.
1: Which of the Aesop's fables that you write about shows the greatest mismatch of fact and fable when it comes to biology and behavior?
2: I think it's got to be the wolf in sheep's clothing. The wolf is trying to kill sheep, obviously, as it does in lots of fables, to eat them. And he can't get very close to the flock of sheep. What he does is actually disguise himself as a sheep by putting on um, sheepskin and pretending to be part of the flock and in this way gets shut in with, with the sheep overnight um, and is able to basically feast on as many as he wants. That doesn't sound so
1: inaccurate that the wolf operates at night, that it can be stealthy, um, that it's a predator, probably it would not wear a sheep's clothing, but the rest of it sounds accurate. What, what troubles you about this fable?
2: The thing that troubles me about the the fable is that in order to disguise itself, that wolf must be capable of something called tactical deception. What scientists talk about as a theory of mind, being aware that other individuals have their own thoughts and beliefs um, and feelings and manipulating them in order to deceive them. And there is no evidence that wolves possess that in any form.
1: Now we know that Aesop's Fables do an entertaining job of providing moral instruction. And, and certainly there's a stickiness to their instruction because we, those who were read Aesop's Fables as children, they, they remember those morals. But I'm wondering if you think that some of these fables have done harm to our long-term perception of animals. And if we come back to the story of the wolf in sheep's clothing, you write that it is the darkest form of anthropomorphism, <laughs> wow. So say a little bit about maybe some of the harm that these, these fables have done.
2: My problem, I think, is that the world has changed so much since Aesop's time. That means that we're still treating these animals according to characterizations that were created two and a half thousand years ago, potentially. And Aesop couldn't ever begin to, to imagine how much the world has changed and how much animals actually need our help we're facing a global ecological catastrophe at the moment with climate change and biodiversity loss and i think it's kind of incredible that we might still be influenced by these these stories from a long bygone era
1: well certainly with wolves i think that some of the characterization of wolf leads to maybe an outsized Fear of them. And that may feed into the way that we try to control some of the populations. If you were to write a fable, a new fable with a wolf in it, how would you characterize that wolf and what might that moral be? I know I'm putting you on the spot here to to create a
2: new fable, but what might it be? (laughs) So, wolves are not deceptive animals. The most that they do is steal food from each other. They live in packs which are strongly family focused. They're very, very loyal within those packs and playful.
1: So they're straightforward, they're loyal to their family, they're playful. That's a very different story. That, that would be mm. a very different story. Very different,
2: yeah. So they're showing a lot of the traits that we really value in our own societies.
1: Well, I'm going to start using the, f- the phrase as loyal and playful as a wolf, beginning now.
2: Yeah,
1: I like it. If I may, I will try to summarize the tale of the dog and his shadow. This is another fable that you include. So a dog is carrying a piece of meat home and he goes over a bridge. He looks over the bridge down into the water. He sees his reflection and in thinking it's another dog with a piece of meat and wanting that meat too, he snaps at the other dog, thereby losing his meat he was carrying in his mouth. And in the end, he has none because, Joe, dogs are greedy. That's the moral,
2: right? Don't be greedy (laughs) like a dog. I was just going to say, I think most dogs would probably go for the meat. If they saw another dog with meat, I think they'd probably go for it.
1: Okay, there I was trying to give more credit to to dogs. Um, but one of the things you highlight in this section is the role of the mirror test in assessing an animal's intelligence. And what do we understand about how dogs do perform with the mirror test? When they see their reflection in a mirror, do they recognize? do they recognize
2: themselves or do they think it's another dog? The mirror test, to give a very brief background, is the gold standard test within behavioral biology for assessing self-awareness, whether or not animals recognize themselves in their reflection, that they know that that is actually me. And it was developed in the late 1960s by Gordon Gallup, and he carried it out with chimpanzees. In the test, he put a little mark on the eyebrow and on one of the ears of the chimpanzees. He gave them various types of exposure to a mirror and he found that when he, the chimpanzees woke up and he put them in front of the mirror, they were exploring their faces and their ears because they could see the reflected image and they could see that there was something different. Well, I should say firstly, dogs fail it. They just didn't really show that they got it at all. So the controversial thing is whether there's one single test, the mirror test, which tells us whether or not animals are self-aware. You know, in the case of dogs, they primarily use their noses when it comes to meeting other individuals and gleaning information about those other individuals. You know, they have a good sniff and they get a lot of information from that. So is a an experiment that is based on their visual ability. Is that really the most relevant way to evaluate self-awareness in, in those animals?
1: It's an excellent point. And um, to the point of dogs being super sniffers, which is certainly what they are, uh, they have abilities with their noses that we do not have. And so maybe an updated story, fable about the dog, would be be curious about your environment. Collect as much information as possible <laughs> and also be loving and kind because <laughs> another animal which is just so loving. Well well finally then Joe, I wonder whether you think we should continue to read Aesop's fables. And if so, if if maybe we shouldn't also have a modern book about animal behavior on the bedside table as well.
2: Yes. I think the answer is we should continue to read them. I like the idea of having a book on animal behavior on the side. Maybe I can recommend one. (laughs) Is it called Aesop's Animals by any chance? I think, yeah, I think there's this book called Aesop's Animals, which might well work. Well, Joe
1: Wimpenny, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion of Aesop's Fables.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Joe Wimpenny is a zoologist and is the author of Aesop's Animals, The Science Behind the Fables. Did the tortoise win the race? With ease. Oh, I see what you mean by slow and steady wins the race, Pop. There's also another moral, son, one that applies to the hare. Bet I know what it is. What? Haste makes waste. (laughs) Our moral instruction may be at least partially tethered to Aesop's fables, but that hasn't persuaded us to somehow include animals in our moral code. That's for later in the show. But first, if Aesop had written a fable about a dog going into space, what might the
3: moral be? So she went up on Sputnik, and she was the first creature to orbit Earth. The mission was designed to never come back, so her fate was already written, essentially. Aesop may
0: have anthropomorphized his creatures, but real animals have achieved what only a very few humans have managed, crossing the final frontier into space. The story
1: of these involuntary pioneers next. This episode of Big Picture Science is Make Space for Animals.
0: The fable about the tortoise and the hare has staying power. It's been told for two dozen centuries that the tortoise and the hare have been immortalized in another way. They are among the non-human animals that have gone into space, an achievement that only a relatively small number of humans have matched. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, liftoff, we have a liftoff. Tortoises and rabbits, which are cousins of the hares, join the cats, frogs, ants, fruit flies. Dogs, monkeys, and chimpanzees that have boldly gone where others have not so that humans could follow. But let me walk back boldly because they had no say in the matter, and some of the animals were undoubtedly terrified.
1: A recent feature in National Geographic magazine gave tribute to these multiple species of astronaut and cosmonaut, some of whom began rocketing into space, that is, up and down, as early as 1947. But in 1957, the Soviets launched Sputnik 2 with the first living creature who would orbit Earth, a dog named Laika.
0: This is the cabin for Laika. It has been comfortably outfitted for her flight. During the training period, Laika was familiarized and became well accustomed to her cabin.
1: The National Geographic feature is bittersweet because, of course, the animals did not choose their missions and many perished along the way. But graphically beautiful, with a compelling summary of the history of these lesser-known space exploits, the feature Animals in Space made a strong impression on us. Its creators, Taylor Magiacomo and Alexander Stegmeier, join
4: us. In the most basic form, they were trying to figure out what would happen to humans. I mean. Uh, beyond a certain elevation, we just weren't even sure. So I think that there's a history of humans using other animals for that scientific research and that study. The first time, I mean, I think in researching the story, a really fascinating one was about uh, in the 18th century, um, a duck, a rooster, and- um, Sheep, I think it was. A sheep, you're right. Okay, you, you know what I'm talking about. A duck, a rooster, and a sheep were sent in a hot air balloon in a demonstration in France. and. I think, just to figure out what would happen to them. Um, So, you know, the first, uh, the rockets that we used to um, send things into space went at such incredible speeds, we didn't even know if an animal or a creature could survive going that speed. Never mind, once it it reached space, what would happen to it?
0: Well, by the time, Taylor, that we get to the first chimp in space, that was 1951, this was still the U.S., HAM was his name, and I think that was part of an acronym for some space uh, hardware company, but he was taught to press buttons, manipulate levers, and so forth. What what were his tasks on board? Do you know?
3: Mostly just like mind puzzle games, like if a light came on hitting the button according to that light, things like that, making sure that ham is conscious and following directions and still able to just perform normally under those excruciating circumstances.
4: You know, the questions we were trying to answer initially are, can a human survive or can a creature survive the force to get to space? Could they survive in space? But then finally, like, did you have any cognitive function? You know, like you could maybe live and you would be breathing, but maybe you would be incapacitated somehow.
0: Taylor, I presume that the illustration of the dog in space at the top of your story is the canine cosmonaut Laika, Tell us her story, how she ended up going into space and and her mission.
3: Well, the the main illustration at the front of the story, that is unfortunately not Laika. That is an unidentified space dog. Um, But Laika, her story is fascinating and extremely sad. She became a space hero. So she went up on Sputnik, and uh, she was the first creature to orbit Earth. The mission was designed to never come back. So her fate was already written, essentially. She was just going to quietly fall asleep in space and then die up there. But unfortunately, that was not the truth. Uh, Something went wrong and she overheated hours into the mission And that truth came out years later.
0: Like, uh, where did the dog come from? Do you know? I mean, did the space agency have a canine kennel out back or something?
3: She was just a stray. Russia liked to collect strays off the street and just kind of test them to see which ones could fare the best under these conditions. And she was one of the, I guess, strongest ones.
0: You you drew an illustration of the capsule, didn't you? I did. It's sort of like a high-tech bread box.
3: Yeah, there's a, at the bottom of the capsule, there's uh, the cabin where her and all of her sensors were. And then at the top, there's the satellite transmitter that looks like a big old sphere globe thing. And then uh, the top of that is a radiation sensor. But didn't this set up an ethical debate, even
0: without knowing that Leica's fate was not a good one? What was the public outcry? Do you have any idea?
4: Yeah, we have some sense of it. You know, I think there's all it, wasn't as widespread as you might think but you know they had only ever planned a one-way mission so i think that sort of um touched the nerve for a lot of people i think especially in some parts of the world where there was a burgeoning conversation about animal rights and initially after laika took off at least to the research that taylor and i had done the the soviets hid that she had died so early on in her flight uh, to the extent that the new york times even reported that there might be a mission that would recover her um, which was, of course, never the case to begin with.
0: Taylor, one thing about the graphics is, is they give a face and they give an individual identity to these critters. You know, they have personality. You know, did you feel that yourself, that uh, you know, there was no longer just a name in a book?
3: Yeah, so one of my main ideas for this was to put a face to all of these critters and put their face. I wanted to show the individuals that sacrificed their lives essentially for this. Um, So I used historical photos for all of the larger charismatic species like the dogs and the primates um, and even some of the smaller rats and mice that were named and had photos of. And that also adds where you can see the, the sheer number of animals. On this spread, I have 313 portraits of animals on this piece. There's some repeating fruit flies, didn't hear it from me, but everyone is unique and its own critter because they are unique.
0: Yeah, some, of, some of the uh, monkeys that you drew, Taylor, uh, they, they, these hats, I mean, you weren't trying to make them stylish. What was the point of the hats?
3: No, unfortunately, these were not just uh, for aesthetics. Uh, these hats were to cover electrodes that were implanted into, into their skulls. A lot of these primates in these joint missions with Russia and the U.S. and even France's Felicet cat. They had electrodes that were implanted in the skull for sensors to make sure that their brains were still working correctly during the missions. So yeah, the hats were just kind of to cover the sight of those electrodes.
0: Alex, you include a diagram to represent the countries whose space programs use or used, in any case animals. No surprise that the vast majority of the missions have been the United States and the USSR. What other countries, though, have uh, have used animal subjects?
4: Many, and surprising ones, to be honest. Um, in the early years, France, like with Felicet, was participating in the space race, and China was early on as well. Um, but uh, most other countries weren't at that time. But later on, Japan starts sending animals uh, in the 90s. And then more recently, Israel, Iran, and China, again, have re- has um, reignited its program. And then most recently, actually, India is looking to build their own space program, but they're uh, trying to, you know, jump the line, maybe I'll say, uh, and go right to sending humans into space. So they're not even going to use animals as test subjects in their space research.
0: Did, did any of that change, I mean, in that direction, that is fewer animals uh, after Yuri Gagarin went into space in 1961? Because if you could successfully send humans, you know, well, you don't, don't need to send dogs or something like that.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Once we achieved sending humans into space, it totally shifted the concentration of the space program, because at that point, it was more about getting humans to the moon and and that next level or that next frontier of space. And so you see a drastic drop off in what animals were sent, because, again, initially, those those animals were just helping us understand the real basics of space, you know, and what it would be like to get there and how do you survive and what are the environmental conditions that you need um, to send a human there? How long can a human last there? And then what happens is uh, after that, animal research starts to be sort of like, um, they're like stowaways, not, not exactly, obviously. They're very, very intentional. And I think I should also be clear that all animals sent to space, especially today, are with very clear guidelines, research, intentions, and it's a very well thought out process. But in terms of um, how that information was cataloged, it it sort of stopped being shared on a public level. You know, Um, it was just sort of small mentions of these other things that were sent up there. And it wasn't until, you know, later in the 60s and the 70s, really the 70s and 80s, I should say, where we start sending animals for other purposes, you know, to test other additional things that we want to learn or understand about space, about microgravity, about radiation, about biology, um, that then these animals have sort of other purposes besides just their general survival.
0: It was sort of a bring them back alive uh, goal, I guess, for certainly in the early years. Tanner, tell us, what was the biggest and smallest uh, thing that uh, went into space that you illustrated?
3: Uh, So the biggest thing was definitely the chimps, so either ham or enos. Uh, The smallest thing is the tardigrade, as they are microscopic. Uh, Many people that I have talked to that aren't in the science field didn't even know tardigrades existed. So that was a lot of fun, and they're they're really small and are hardy and somehow immortal.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing about tardigrades. <laughs> to begin with, they they really are microscopic. I suppose if you know there's a tardigrade on a sheet of paper in front of you, you might be able to see the dot, right? But you mentioned they're very very tough, and I, I'm I'm probably mistaken here, but I think that some tardigrades actually, by accident, crash into the moon. My guess is that they're probably still alive, but those tardigrades are so tough. You can do all sorts of stuff with them. So finally, Taylor and Alex, you're sitting next to someone on a bus and they ask you, what was the worth of all of it? I mean, was it worth sending animals into space? Was it worth the lives of the animals that didn't make it? What would you say?
3: I would say it It um, was worth it. the The beginning was definitely more touch and go regarding survivability, but in general, uh, we have learned so much from these creatures.
4: You know, it is any kind of animal research is always a delicate topic, especially in modern times of a conversation. But I think it was absolutely worth it. I, I think there's so many things that we benefit from on Earth that we don't even realize we've we've learned from our research in space. And then, of course, there's always the adventurous and fantastical thinking of of uh, what happens if we have to live in space one day, <laughs> you know? And so we're, we're constantly, we're still learning about those things. There's still so many unanswered questions about space, you know, can humans procreate in space? Can anything procreate in space, you know? So there's, there's a lot of biological research that's happening with living animals, with animal uh, specimens and other biological specimens that I think is incredibly important to science.
0: Well, Alex Stegmeyer, I'd like to thank you so very much for elucidating the adventures of the first space astronauts.
4: Thank you. It's great to be with you today.
0: Taylor Majiacomo, thanks very much to you for such an intriguing piece of work.
3: Thank you. I'm glad everyone enjoyed it.
1: Taylor Maggiacomo is an associate graphic editor at National Geographic, and Alexander Stegmeier is a freelance graphic editor at the magazine. A link to their feature, providing a visual timeline of every animal that has gone into space, is on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Well, we made room for them in our rockets, so why don't we make room for them in our ethical treatment of one another?
5: One of the things that's difficult is trying to take the moral codes that, and values and norms that relate to us as a species and try and extend them out.
0: Coming up. Why humans have trouble admitting and accepting that we are animals, and why it's time to share the planet more equitably with our furry, feathered, and finned relatives.
1: This episode of Big Picture Science is Make Space for Animals.
0: In the mid-18th century, Johann Christian Bach composed his symphony in G minor, opus 6, number 6. Dramatic stuff. Its compelling harmonies, the complex orchestral depth, the dramatic swagger, well, that thrilled listeners of that era with Sturm and Drang, that is to say, storm and stress. Similarly. Those who stroll through a New York forest at dawn are thrilled by the symphonies offered there, which you might call feather and Schnabel, Feather and Beak.
1: Different kinds of music, to be sure, but each spectacular in its own way. And sure, the violin is a difficult instrument to play, but consider what's required for a songbird to make music songbirds can do amazing vocal tricks with their voice boxes. They can independently control the branches of an organ called a syrinx. These birds can produce two unrelated pitches at once, even making one rise and the other fall at the same time. I'm lucky if I can whistle a
0: single note. And these animals' ability to make music is frequently cited as evidence of their intelligence, even their special status. Yep, one of these animals, because humans are animals too. Or have we forgotten that? We have forgotten that.
1: According to Melanie Challenger, a researcher, philosopher, and the author of How to Be Animal, a new history of what it means to be human. She's familiar with what voice boxes are capable of doing. She is also an opera singer.
0: She makes the case for embracing our animal selves. After all, although it ends up winding through the primates, the human evolutionary lineage is animal all the way back to the sea squirt. We share the overwhelming majority of our genetic material with animals.
1: Yet the frequent practice in Western science and philosophy has been to separate ourselves
5: from the barking, brain, squeaking, snorting creatures whose company we keep. An exceptionalism as it is at the moment across really most of the world, sees a sharp moral divide between humans on the one hand and all of the rest of nature. So it doesn't matter if you're a gorilla or you're a toucan or what kind of creature you are, what kind of capability you have. If you're not a human, you have almost no real intrinsic value. So almost no true moral value on your own terms, whereas human beings are perceived as as having full possession of moral status. We have been talking in the show about how we rely on animals for companionship,
1: food, labor, and as subjects for science research. We use animal characters to provide moral instruction. So why do we have trouble extending our ethical codes to
0: them? Okay, but still I ask you, Melanie, humans are animals, sure, but they do have some exceptional abilities that set them apart, don't they?
5: Yeah, that's true. So I like to say humans are exceptional, but exceptional doesn't mean superior. So all animals, to a certain extent, are exceptional. They are the product of their evolutionary imperatives and and their conditions. And it's remarkable if you can echolocate, for instance. All species have something exceptional about them. We make symphonies and we have a cognitive niche. We can do all kinds of remarkable things in our hyper-sociality, with our cultures and with our minds. For sure, that makes us exceptional. But making a moral leap from that is much more complicated. And defining what it is that would make humans only the possessors of any kind of moral uh, value, that's even harder still.
0: I'm not here to defend the Homo sapiens, but but maybe I will because I, I don't think I, I don't think that many people would contest the idea that physiologically we are animals. That's that's pretty clear, and even more that our desires or our competitive natures or whatever you care to point out, a whole lot of our behavior can be found in other species. But but you point out this moral difference, I guess, because, you know, animals, I mean, if they're predators, you know, they kill other animals. But for them, it's not a moral question. It's survival. So we could assure ourselves that we have this moral superiority. You've already mentioned that. And uh, since uh, animals don't really have morals, isn't isn't that true?
5: I think just because we are moral agents, so as in we have the ability to think in moral terms or to develop abstract moral ideas. Just because we are moral agents doesn't limit the number of moral subjects that there are. So that's the first thing that I would say. And and to to look at orangutans as an example, now orangutans are incredibly similar to us in, in one particular way, that they have a similar kind of gestation period for their offspring, and the babies stay with their mother and continue to learn with their mother and continue to have relationships with their mother throughout their lifetimes. If there's something like love, human love in the animal kingdom, it's likely with the orangutan. And yet, we still paradoxically live in a time where orangutans are desperately endangered at our hands. We kill them, we take their lands, we destroy their whole evolutionary future because we are absolutely convinced that only we possess moral status. And yet, if we look at that creature, it's really difficult to turn around and say, well, you can't write a piano sonata, so that's why. I'm you know can treat you as though you have absolutely no moral status you know funnily enough I work in classical music I work alongside one of our finest composers in the UK Mark Simpson so I actually work with someone who does write symphonies and it always amuses me when I hear back that kind of thing about human exceptionalism because I always want to ask the questioner do you know what can you write a symphony because my suspicion is that that sort of incredible ability that we raise so high among humans is actually very rare across the population. And I certainly wouldn't want to decide that the individual who can't do that has a lesser moral status than the individual who can. It's not a good foundation for our moral behavior, and we shouldn't apply it across the species boundary either.
0: I think that, uh, bad as it may be, you know, the people on the planet today are more sympathetic to uh, their confreres, if you will, to all the other DNA-based life, which is to say all life than predecessors might have been. How do you feel about things like giving, well, the orangutans, for example, rights that they could defend in a court? I mean, should they have not just environmental regulations that control what you can do with their land and all that sort of stuff, but I mean, that they actually have rights? Yes.
5: Yeah, so I think we are moving to an era where the moral circle is expanding. You could argue that there was a time and probably in different worldviews, that moral circle did not contract as much as it has done in modern industrial societies. So. I, I worked with Inuit hunters, for instance, uh, um, in, in the earlier stage of my career. And with the kind of um, some Inuit points of, of view, you have to treat other organisms with respect, that you don't treat them, you, you treat them as interrelated and you treat them as having, being possessors of value and rights on, on their own terms. Obviously in the history of Western legal thinking, we're, we're really far away from that, but you have things like the Non-Human Rights Project led by Stephen Wise and other projects like that that are showing. And, you know, we've had the rights of nature, wild laws sort of uh, on the horizon that and recently the idea of ecocide. We're definitely seeing both a moral and as a consequence, a legal shift. And that will inevitably continue What I think is important is that we recognise that organisms can communicate on their own terms. Now, we're not going to drag them into a court of law. They don't want to be there. It would be distressing for them were they to be there. But we can listen to them and we can respond to what they either vocalise or behaviourally show us about their interests. I do believe that many other organisms are capable of communicating their own interests to us but we will only respond to those when we regard them as having a value on their own terms.
0: Well, what's the path toward that? I mean, we have modern biology. Of course, everybody, I think, now knows that they are an animal, at least in the physiological uh, sense, in the biological sense. Um, and personally, I'm willing to be an animal. I mean, the dog here has a pretty good life, <laughs> you know, just eating and sleeping, chasing those girls. But how do I deal? You seem to suggest that if I'm willing to admit that I'm just another watery bag at a basic level, the same as a lot of other watery bags, and, you know, maybe I'll be more sympathetic to the other creatures here. Is that the idea? Should I stop eating animals or stop taking their habitat? What should should I do?
5: Well, I think fellowship is the key to our morality. I think it's really important to understand what it is that inspires our moral action and our moral agency. And usually it turns on compassion. And I mean that in the literal sense, so compassio, to suffer with others. So to have empathy for them, to recognize that they, and, and, and key to this is also recognizing that their life matters, that their form of suffering matters. It might not be translatable quite to our form, for instance, we we're looking at totally different body plans totally different body forms out there different needs different desires but i do believe it's only fellowship and only inspiring fellowship that is likely to properly motivate us in a moral shift but personally yes i'm very determined and hopeful that that shift is coming
0: finally so if we extend a moral code that we develop to you know not just our next in line smartest critters on the planet, like those orangutans, you know, what would that look like? I mean, do the, the bacteria on the floor here, do they get rights of some
5: sort? Yeah, so that's always the concern that people have when we start to, to trespass into into the moral lives of, of other organisms and moral status. So the way that I try to see this is that our moral duties should be determined by the organism in its own beautiful singularity. One of the things that's difficult is trying to take the moral codes that, and values and norms that relate to us, us as a species and try and extend them out, because it seems to make sense. And in fact, we already do do it to a certain extent with other mammals, because a lot of the things that, that we've encoded, so for instance, the kinds of suffering Uh, that we've encoded the kind of um, cognitive traits that we have. So our sense of subjectivity, for instance, we've encoded into law and into our moral values. And it feels relatively easy to extend that out to, say, chimpanzees, to the great apes broadly, to even potentially to dolphins. These are another very social um, mammal. But once you start looking at a shark for instance it starts to get a little bit more problematic once you're talking about a hummingbird you're you're in the realms of it being completely bizarre and so so our best bet really is to look at moral subjecthood so to recognize that life is a good starting point for assuming there is some sort of intrinsic value there that, that there is Um, agency in all life and therefore there is an intention even if that intention is only to persist for instance in all life and that is some kind of moral status that we can recognize but your duties are going to be determined by the differences in those organisms and your duties in the sorts of ways that you might behave towards a hummingbird for instance and the sorts of needs that a hummingbird might have to flourish or a a single-cell organism or a sponge on the ocean floor are going to be wildly different to the needs and the duties that would follow when we consider a dolphin or a primate or a fellow human.
0: Melanie Challenger, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you.
5: Oh, a pleasure, sir. Really enjoyed it.
1: Melanie Challenger is a writer-philosopher, and she is the author of How to Be Animal, a new history of what it means to be human. Well, Seth, we're at that point where we asked what the big picture is here. And what do you see as the big picture?
0: Well, for me, the big picture was that we have changed our attitudes, our relationships to animals, right? I mean, we, we heard about all those space critters that, 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 that entered the final frontier and so forth and so on. That's extremely interesting, actually. But for me, you know, exploiting animals... Nobody ever thought of it in that way. Nobody thought that it was a bad thing. And we've been exploiting animals for 300,000 years.
1: Well, I'm thankful that our attitude toward animals have shifted. I think there's still a great deal further to go on the ethical front. But it also seems interesting to me that we need to evaluate animals in terms of their intelligence and establish their intelligence As a marker of their value and whether or not we should accord them ethical consideration. I don't know if it matters whether or not an animal is intelligent. I think what's important is that animals can suffer and animals have complex emotional lives. And these should be guides as to how we treat our fellow animals on this planet. And as we stated in the show, we are, we are also animals. Humans are animals. And these are our companions. And, you know, they deserve, they deserve respect.
0: Well, I, I mean, that, that extends a certain way back in evolutionary development. I don't know how you'd feel about, you know, according all these uh, attributes, if you will, our behaviors to things like cockroaches, right? They deserve our respect. Yeah, at a certain level they do, but you know it's not the same as uh, a horse, for example, or a cat or a dog or any of the, if you will, other vertebrates that are so close to us.
1: Melanie Challenger said they don't need to be the same, and I would a- agree with her on but that. But how do we I define mean, the border? Well, that's complicated, so I guess we'll have to apply ourselves. I mean, what you say about a cockroach is, yes, I, I don't know that I would try to advocate for, in a court of law... For the rights of a cockroach, but I also wouldn't torture a cockroach because I know a, a cockroach, and some scientists argue that cockroaches have consciousness. A cockroach can feel pain. Tell the story of your walk through the forest of Borneo and and what happened, because I understand that it it made a big impression on you.
0: Well, it did. We got to this. Uh... Nature Reserve, it's actually a national park in southern Borneo. You surrounded by jungle and just this small boat going up this narrow river. Anyhow, eventually we got to this nature preserve, and there were the orangutans. And, you know, they saw us. They would, you know, every day they would see humans, so it wasn't so special for them. It was special for me, though. Uh, but they, you know, they, they would uh, come down for the food and all that sort of thing. But at some point, a young orangutan descended from the tree, and took my hand and walked alongside me for a while. It was completely natural, as a child would do it. And that made an impression. What did his hand feel like? it felt like a human hand. It wasn't any different, a little smaller maybe. It was a young orangutan. That is so sweet. But it, you know, it was memorable.
1: This show is made possible thanks to the animal instincts of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. And to NASA, Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study, among other things, the evolution of life and intelligence on Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and to our Patreon supporters.
1: Original music in the show by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. And a special thanks to Laika and Ham and the other animals named and unnamed who contributed to the space program and whose memory inspired this episode, and to all the species who contribute to the stunning diversity of life on this planet. This episode of Big Picture Science, exploring our relationship to them, is called Make Space for Animals.